0: and welcome back to Infection Prevention in Conversation. Today, I'm excited to introduce my guest, Elaine Clipman-Green. Elaine is a consultant clinical scientist and infection control doctor at Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children, NHS Foundation Trust. We'll be talking about the role of the clinical scientist in infection prevention, struggling both lab-based research and clinical work in healthcare settings, the different skill sets Elaine balances, and how her work impacts an IPC team. Elaine also blogs at girlymicrobiologist.com, tweets from at micro and has been involved in other interesting public engagement projects, which hopefully we'll get the chance to touch on today. Hi, Elaine, welcome and thank you very much for uh, being a guest on our podcast.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited.
0: No, um, it's our pleasure. I had the chance before recording this today to have a little look at your background, some work that you've done in your career, and I noticed that you started off actually studying zoology before making the move into microbiology and infection control. So would you mind just telling us what it was about microbiology that sparked your interest? What made you make that seemingly non-linked jump between those two
1: specialties and then what's happened from there? It's a bit random, isn't it? Um, so I think like many people, I knew I liked science, right? I knew I liked science, but I didn't really know what science was. Well, it wasn't the kind of science you saw on TV that wasn't people sitting in research labs or saving the world from a nuclear explosion, right? There is no actual applied science really that is accessible if you're just a normal person living a normal life and so I went to university and did zoology because I knew I was no good at plants or biochemistry, and so I thought, you know what, animals, let's do animals, they're kind of cool, um, and did my undergrad in zoology, finished, and thought, I mean, this was amazing. I got to study the demographics of witchcraft accusations, which was the most amazing dissertation in the world in the British Library, but it doesn't mean anything it's not going to lead to any form of change and so I finished my undergrad and offered an MRes in biophysics and I was like someone's going to pay me ten thousand to do a master's that sounds pretty cool like I didn't come from the kind of background where I could afford to pay to go and do that kind of thing and I went and as part of that I got to do a research project looking at catheterization in spinal injury patients and looking at nanoparticulate content on catheters and how it changed things. And all of a sudden I realized there's this world of science out there that you do things that actually benefit people that actually leads to clinical change. And I suddenly realized that that was what I wanted to do. And coincidentally, a job came up in London as a trainee clinical scientist and it just ticked all of the boxes despite the fact that I have to admit on day one at uni I was part of my clinical micro masters I'd never heard of of vancomycin and so my notes were rather iffy to start off with I had a steep learning curve but it was the best thing I've ever done. And
0: before that had you heard about healthcare scientists did you know what they were like when you first saw that advert what was your process and Know how did you raise your awareness to decide actually, yeah, this is going to be the right path for me in science?
1: So, I'd really love to say that I did lots and lots of research and I knew what I was getting into, um, but I didn't. So, my mate was a microbiology um graduate, so she did the same course as me. She was going to do the MRES that I just finished, and she said, I found this job and it looked really good in London. And I was like, "Oh, well, I need to move to London. That's where my husband is. Well, he wasn't even my husband back then." Um, that looks kind of cool. It looks clinical. I don't really know what it is, but let's give it a go. And you have to remember, and this just goes to show that I'm a bit old. Um, there wasn't Google back then. Like, you couldn't Google what a job was. I'd never heard like the term healthcare scientist didn't exist, and so. It said that you were going to be a trainee clinical scientist. And I was kind of like, well, I don't really know much about that, but it sounds like it involves the kind of work that I did during my MRes dissertation. And that appeals to me. And I just took the plunge. I think these days there's so much more information out there. And I was involved in creating the T-level for healthcare science so that students can actually understand this stuff at uni now, well, pre-uni at A-level, which is where the T-level is so that people are much more aware of it as an opportunity and as a role but when I came in um, it was kind of just like you had to fill in paper application forms it was that stage and and so it wasn't that I really knew much about it apart from the fact that I thought that I should follow my interests and something that excited me and that's how I ended up here.
0: And did you feel at that stage that you had any role models or any people that you looked talked to and aspired to that were doing something you wanted to do and getting success in a way that you wanted to be
1: successful no so i did a piece of work actually with the royal society of biology about female inspiration as a scientist and i have to say that when i was a student i just you didn't see any there weren't any female scientists on tv i couldn't have really told you apart from historical figures like mary Curie, right you just didn't see people like me being in job roles like this and it's one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about getting out there and going to schools and going to universities and doing bits of tv you know it's not because I think I'm the best scientist in the world but I think if we're not out there and visible we won't get the next Mary Curie who decides to go into science they'll be stuck in an office job because they won't realize that this is where they need to end up.
0: Even now despite all the work that has gone on I still don't think there's very good awareness amongst young people about careers in science and how varied they can be and how transitional and how rapid the impact from science can have on people I mean the pandemic has been a great example and I hope that in a way has brought it up the list of kind of into people's consciousness of actually science I mean you mentioned it earlier you know saving the world literally saving the world you know vaccine development and and I really hope that's something that will come out of the pandemic that the roles you can take in science and females have in science so would you mind just telling us a little bit about how you got from taking on that trainee role that leap of faith to where
1: you are now it's been a really interesting ride because I think even at no point that I was taking the next steps was there somebody who had taken the next step ahead of me I often joke that I'm number one in a field of one, right? (laughs) It has great advantages because you can create your own vision of what the role is, but there's no one to kind of go to and go, am I doing this right? Am I benchmarking? Am I okay? Like Um, a mentor, so to speak. Yeah, just to feel like you're on the right track. You kind of have to follow your gut. So I was really lucky in many ways, getting into infection control, was a bit of a fleek. So when I started, you had to do four years training in order to get your state registration and license to practice. However, the funding was only for three years. And so you had to find funding for your fourth year. And it happened to be that the infection control team hadn't managed to recruit a new um, PA. And so they had a bit of money left over and they were like, OK, well, we don't really know what to do with a scientist, but I suppose you could come and sit with us and do some stuff and help us out. And so that's how I ended up in infection control. And I think it was one of those right time, right place things in that molecular was beginning to be a thing in diagnostics and infection control was moving away from the fact that it had mostly been focused on hand hygiene. So there were a few care bundles around, but that real change in how embedded infection control is in all practice hadn't really happened yet. And so I, as a scientist, came in and was like, "Okay, so I'm really happy to sort out all of this stuff. Like if you want to sort out typing or if you want to look at the environment. I can do that for you. And so I had something to offer and there was a gap for me to fill. And it took a little while um, to really kind of be accepted into that space but then once I think everyone realized that infection control teams in general do much better with multidisciplinary team support I think they're much more open to it because they're used to having an infection control doctor and infection control nurses and now data analysts once they realized that there was something that you were bringing to the table they were so open about keeping me there and working out where we went next
0: and how about the stakeholders external to the IPC team? So the people you had to work with, the hearts and minds that IPC have to win. What challenges have you found having a different title,
1: having a different training scheme? Have you found any challenges? Oh, so I used to get hung up on a lot. Um, a lot of things about how you answer the phone. So people would go, are you a nurse? And I'd go, no. And can I help? And they'd just hang up on me. And so I learned things like if someone goes, so you're one of the nurses, I go, I'm one of the team. And so you'd learn to deflect the question in order to be able to have the conversation because people are used to putting people in boxes and knowing what they'll get from them in a specific box. And it really confuses people when you've suddenly got this role that they just don't understand whether they're even allowed to ask the question of you. Um, so, you know, it, It has had its challenging moments. Um, I think for me, that's led to so much personal growth in terms of handling those situations, handling those conversations, and also really looking at myself about whether this was the thing that I really wanted, um, that I wouldn't change it for anything because I know what I want to do. I know the change that I want to make and I know I'm in the right place to do it. And I'm not sure if it had been really easy and straightforward that I would feel certain about any of those things um, because they've made me make really deliberate decisions at every step rather than just completely going with the flow. That makes
0: that makes perfect sense. I mean I
1: think whenever
0: it's in the process of evolution or change there's always fast adopters, there's always slow adopters and it's always a process of winning those hearts and minds over but it sounds like you've done that absolutely fantastically and I was listening to you speak about some of the help you've had from Hiss and from other um, research funders as well about small grants that have led to bigger grants and how small projects have ultimately led to medium projects have ultimately led to huge projects worth millions and millions of pounds and the research funding you've attracted so I was wondering if you could just talk us through that process as well because I think sometimes for junior Um, clinical academics or for trainees that want to get into um, you know academia it's a very daunting process so I was wondering if you could maybe talk about that a little bit please
1: yeah I mean the first thing I'd say is money is freedom frankly Um, and one of the reasons that I change hearts and minds is because if someone needs someone to buy something or to pay for a conference I'm the person they can currently hit up in order to pay for that. And that gets you a whole lot of brownie points when you need to have those conversations about kind of being accepted and being embedded. And so not that money is everything, but it buys you a bit of access and it buys you a relationship credit. And I think relationship capital is so important in healthcare that we shouldn't ignore it. And it's not a bad thing. I think people think that you have to start big. And some of the best stuff I've ever done has started from a thousand pounds. so like some of the so I'm involved in a project called Nosocomial, which is about reaching out to members of the public and um doing pieces of creative drama for change for change in how people have attitudes, for changes in how they practice, but also to engage and entertain so that people actually see that all of this stuff isn't just doom and gloom, more people are going to die from AMR by 2050 than cancer. To be honest, everyone's had enough of doom and gloom. That first £1,000 came from Hiss. And we have now reached thousands of people with a message that we wouldn't have had because Hiss took a chance on the fact that we were going to do something a bit different. Um, Uh, I I was
0: reading actually in the 40th anniversary, um, the paperwork from the society about nosocomial the play that you co-wrote with nicola baldwin um, a playwright so using a public engagement grant and um, that actually um, played at camden people's theater the underground festival in september 2018 can you tell us a little bit about more about the play and the feedback you got from it the response and how doing different things in your career really helps you to develop and evolve transferable skills so maybe you could talk a little bit to that as
1: well Yeah, absolutely. So I work in pediatrics, right? So I have to speak to four year olds about conditions and then I have to speak to their like 80, 90 year old grandma about the same thing. And so being able to communicate in a way that's appropriate is super key. Um, and it's really important to be able to pitch and to work out what level of information and to engage when you're having a conversation some people need me to be Dr. Cloutman Green in a room and some people need me to be Elaine and just be able to have a conversation about the unicorn outfit they're wearing and how they're feeling that day. And it's really important to be able to do that spread. So the NOSA-Cainville project is, um, it makes me laugh a little, in that I met Nicola at um, an AMR event and that particular event went okay, but we were like, isn't it a real pity that no one wants to talk about the whole process of amr um, no one wants to talk about the scientists behind it and nobody really wanted to talk about like the bugs behind it and the microbes themselves which felt really weird to me when talking about amr as a concept people wanted to talk about gps and gp conversations it's fine it's really important community prescribing is really important but it's not the entire story of why people behave the way they behave and so um, Camden People's Theatre had a a call out for pieces of work for that festival and Nicola and I had a cup of tea and went oh, we'll just put something in probably won't go anywhere will it so we put it in said we'd bid for three nights and suddenly we're scheduled and we need to have a play and we have no play um, we have nothing <laughs> and we have no money to do one, and so we reached out to Hiss and went we just need like a little bit of starter money and his gave us the thousand pounds that we started with and it really changed my thoughts so I really believe that healthcare these days needs to be moving towards a co-productive approach it's not about me being the authority in the room my patients will have really like one of a thousand people in the world with their condition their families know more about it than I ever will And so when we're having conversations about their care, it needs to involve them. We felt that it was really important to maybe do the same thing with this piece of theatre. And so we brought a whole load of scientists and infection control professionals together in a room. Um, We gave them some Prosecco and some food (laughs) and said, tell us your stories. And it's really interesting. Scientists often say they have nothing to say. And you get them together and suddenly give them a voice, and you can't stop them talking. And so, three hours later, we had all of these amazing tales that were told about people linked to health and linked to AMR and what it was like to be in hospital with an infection, sometimes from their own personal perspective, but also from the perspective of being the first person in the world to know that somebody's got something that means their outcome is going to be really poor and what it feels like to carry that. Knowledge and burden. And so Nicola is an incredibly talented playwright, and she's won lots of awards for all kinds of things and did a job of effectively weaving those tales into a single piece of drama to really raise awareness of what healthcare science and infection control is actually about. So the piece of work is about effectively a scientist who is experiencing their own illness but believes they're trying to solve an outbreak. Um, whilst having their own exposure and so they see their colleagues basically trying to diagnose what's going on with them whilst putting in a whole bunch of infection control measures and what it's like to experience that in terms of almost a thriller um, to try to make the process of what we do um entertaining but also to raise awareness of the fact that there are all these scientists who are doing stuff behind um the scenes there are all these infection control teams who are making decisions and what it's like to be the one that's making that decision at seven o'clock on a friday night on your own in a way that is still entertaining to people so it's not about lecturing Um, and seeing how powerful reflecting those stories back at the people who'd given them freely was. I mean there's a there's a little bit that came for me and it was the weirdest thing on the planet to see someone else speak your words
0: holding a mirror up for you
1: yeah I got really tearful um it was really weird because it was about a very difficult time where basically I didn't have a weekend off for three years because I was trying to do a PhD in infection control whilst working in infection control and how much it meant to me to still be doing things for patients in that time and that that was what got me through. Um, and so I think it was a really powerful thing for the people that were involved in that process. And now that process has been rolled out for multiple pieces of work um, to multiple age groups. So we have a drag klebsiella um at which just honestly never stops making me giggle <laughs> every time I see it. What's her name? So it's um it's actually Klebsiella, but it's Klebsiella as a punk drag queen. <laughs> um, who's very upset that Morganella kicked her out of the band um, yeah <laughs> and so it just means that you're speaking to different groups in ways that are appropriate for them um, that are still entertaining
0: and you said something in presentation that that I watched about never forgetting that you're working for the public the money you're getting is coming from the public the patients you're serving are the public and how important it is and I do think we all overlook it, just engaging with the public at every every stage in our jobs.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're my boss, right? Yeah. They yeah. are my boss. Everything I should do should be to benefit them. And if yeah. I'm doing research, it's not so I can have a jolly to a conference in the States. It's so that we're doing things to make things better for them. And I am a very impatient person. I, I don't have the energy um to, I think, focus on one tiny biochemical pathway for like 10 years which is why I'm in the work that I'm in and I think the incredible power of where we are at is that I can make decisions today that will make changes in terms of research and application for patients in six weeks time there aren't many things that you can do that can have that kind of impact on someone's life Well, you were saying,
0: again, in in the, the same presentation that I watched in preparation for this, about how a relatively small grant that you received, which helped with hexon typing for adenovirus, and how then that became really pivotal to the current investigation of the current hepatitis outbreak in children. So that's a classic example of that, isn't it? Something which started quite small and, you know, the research developed and then actually relatively quickly went on to play quite
1: an important role in something at a national level. Yeah, I mean well international level. Yeah. Um and obviously like all the fancy UK HSA and fancy sequencing has been done by other people. Um, but that work is all based on the hexon typing we brought in because I wanted to be able to say whether someone got an infection in my trust or not. Um, because that means that you get extended length of stay, they get extra anti um antivirals that are really quite unpleasant. And Adenovirus at the time was very non-sexy. No one really wanted to do it, but I think it's the most fascinating of viruses. And because I do a lot of work in environmental IPC, it can survive in the environment for more than three months. And so we have massively changed the risk to our patients based on one very small grant. Um, that has built and built and built over time. So now that we have a whole genome sequencing service, where we just had a business case approved to do it every week because it has such an impact on the way that we manage patients.
0: And what what was happening clinically? Were you having outbreaks? Were you having what you thought were linked cases but had no way to prove it? Like what was happening before that that triggered the need for this piece of work?
1: So, I believe it was some time ago now. We'd had three deaths. And that was an enormous um, shock. Three deaths with adenovirus, but not necessarily because of adenovirus. It's really hard to tell um, because there was this whole thing about, you know, was it reactivation? Was it a new infection? It's a really difficult virus because of the fact that it can reoccur rather than be a new infection to really pin down whether you're doing the right things. And so you can lock down a ward and stop people being able to move and effectively put these small children in prison cells for months at a time in order to protect them. But is that the right thing to do if the source of those infections were reactivation or what we should be doing is looking at immunosuppression? And so these small things have massive impacts about how we choose to allocate our resource, but also how it impacts the patient experience while they're with us. And I think we have to be more certain about these are not no cost decisions when we say we're sticking somebody in isolation, especially if you're sticking somebody in isolation for six months because they've got no cells and they're going to continue to shed a virus and they're learning to walk, they're learning to talk. These are kind of social development time. They're not going to get back. You're going to impact them long term. And so if you're going to do it, then we need to make sure that we're not just doing it because we can but because we should. And so that's kind of where a lot of our work is focused on the, yes, we have all of these options available to us, but doing them all is not necessarily the most sensible thing. So what do we do scientifically and with research to understand what is the best thing that we can do in response?
0: That's fascinating. The other thing, talking about the impact of the environment and with the adenovirus cases... I've also heard you previously speak about the environment network.
1: So the environment network was one of those things where do you know you think you send an email around and um and you think that maybe three people might be interested and you might just have a cup of tea. Um that's kind of how the environment network started. So my PhD was on the role of the environment in cost transmission of infection. And I found it fascinating because there's huge amounts of human behaviour involved, and there's a lot of stuff where people design spaces because they think they're going to be amazing and then you stick a person in it and they do something that's completely different to what the person that designed the space is because they haven't really thought about what it's like to live in a space um, as a patient so there was a really great um one of my first studies it was an ITU, not a gosh and I was looking at kind of surface contamination and air contamination and Somebody had put a moisturiser dispenser as you went into the space. And so they obviously thought that this would be good for nursing staff when they were washing their hands. The problem is nobody that visited that ITU knew what a moisturiser dispenser was versus an alcohol gel dispenser. So every visitor came in and moisturised their hands thinking they were gelling them and it would make all of the difference. And it's just one of those things where you see there and you sit and watch it and you're like, this is a disaster, mate. Um, and so, consequences. Yeah. And it probably made entire sense to the person that put it up there. And so everybody that came in who was a visitor thought that they were making people safer when actually they were having no effect or making it worse because they weren't then going to gel again mm-hmm. once they hit a bed space. And so there was this whole area that I thought was so interesting about the fact that everybody said the environment didn't play a role, but I work in pediatrics and like you can physically see kids putting things in their mouths from the floor, right? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that if you stick something on the floor and a kid is learning how to walk and is crawling, they're going to get stuff. Um, and I was trying to publish papers and everybody said they weren't interested in what I had to write because the environment didn't play a role in infection. And it was becoming really challenging and so the environment network was effectively something that um, a small group of us started in order to try to have a space to share that learning and to also give each other support when you're getting told that what you're saying doesn't matter over and over again Um, to have somebody to go yeah actually no I get it I get it it does matter and so the environment network is effectively has grown so it's kind of well over 150 members now and we have an annual meeting once a year and the purpose of it is that we try to share some of the evidence base that's out there but we also do things like when we have our um, annual meetings we run case studies in the afternoon so we sit there and go this is all the stuff like this is things that haven't been
0: published but also people can share from the learning
1: yeah, because a lot of people don't feel like you can share and publish some of the stuff on the environment. And also sometimes it's really challenging to publish something because you tend to do packages of responses, don't you, in infection right. control rather than a single thing. And so it's not like you can do a lovely kind of odds ratio analysis on what happened. Um, And so it gives people a safe space where they can share both the things that went right, but also the things that went wrong um, so that we don't do the same things over and over again. And to give people a bit of support, um, I think things are changing. People are caring more about the environment. It's also meant that we've got onto various guideline committees like HESAL has a, a water and a ventilation committee that I wouldn't have been part of in terms of guidance if it hadn't been for this kind of thing so things are changing but it it is a useful safe space um to be able to talk about actual practice and we also get people like engineers involved because all of the guidelines are written by engineers and so unless they hear and it's
0: such a steep learning curve engineering trying to when you're in the stress of an outbreak situation or an incident situation that's not conducive to learning everything you need to yeah. know about piping water outlets and other whatever the aspect may be yeah. so actually but that's what tends to be happening So it's very reactive so that that actually is really useful and what we can do is we can actually um alongside we'll, we'll put the details alongside the podcast so people know where to find the details of that as well
1: lovely lovely and you too can care about swabbing of yeah. surfaces and also just a massive heads up to uh, thanks to HISS, really because we currently have a phd student who's trying to put together how you investigate environmental outbreaks and we wouldn't have sam who is an amazing phd student if it wasn't for the fact that HISS also recognized the importance of this and backed us in order to try to get something out there so we get some practice support. So people aren't trying to work this out from first principles. Themselves.
0: Yeah. Some of the other things I wanted to talk to you about, there was a couple of things that really resonated with me when I was reading a couple of your blog entries. And the first one was the CV of failure. So talking about things that necessarily haven't gone to plan when you've progressed through your career, how that ultimately has really helped you, about all the, the grant applications you weren't successful about about all the times that you tried something that perhaps didn't work first time and i think that's something that in our profession people try to hide and people don't want to talk about
1: i mean i think for me fundamentally failing is where the learning is it's where you learn the most about yourself but it's also where you have the most growth in terms of your learning so the things that haven't gone right where I spent time in reflecting or I've had feedback about what's not gone right are the things where actually I've become much stronger as an individual and as a scientist and as an IPC professional. I think the stuff that works, you don't necessarily take the time to reflect on it. You just kind of ride with it and enjoy it. Um, I think we hide our failures so much and anyone that follows me on Twitter will know that I'm probably a little overly honest I will say when I've had a bad day and when things have sucked and I haven't managed to get on top of it, like my email inbox failures um, are a continuous theme throughout my social media. I think that I have also learned the most about me when I failed. So, I mean, even getting my consultant post, frankly, was challenging. I was told by a lot of people that You know, it just wasn't going to work out for someone like me. Um, I was a healthcare scientist. I was a young female in a world that frankly is mostly occupied by men and you learn who to listen to. I listen enough that I can take on board the awareness of what I need to change and what I'm facing. And I also learn to let some other stuff go. And I don't want the people following me to think they have to be perfect because I think perfection is dull, right? Um, I am not perfect. And I am constantly turning around to people when we've had, I've had a bad day and I've had a bad conversation. And I will go back to my guys and go, I didn't do that very well. Shall we do it again? Sorry about that. Let's just reboot it um, because people want honesty.
0: I think it makes it much more, relatable for trainees as well trainees need to see that process for them to realize that what they're actually trying to reach is attainable because we're all just human beings who you know sometimes know what we're doing sometimes not quite sure as a supervisor of trainees that's something that I feel quite strongly about that it's important to just be honest about things that haven't gone well first time and they always feed back to me that that's something that they find incredibly reassuring and helpful in their training the other thing that I read that you'd written that resonated and I think was really useful was about stepping into a senior position and hints and tips, advice for people who were taking on roles, senior roles, more senior than they'd previously occupied, moving from, and I'm quoting here, one who does to one who sees.
1: Yeah, I think that when you are a trainee, your job is to just do right you're doing the next thing you're doing the next thing you're doing the next qualification you're handling the next results you're just doing all the time and I took me ages to work out why when I became more senior why when I took on the lead healthcare scientist job I felt like I wasn't achieving and it's because I was so used to doing that when I wasn't doing I felt like I wasn't somehow fulfilling my responsibilities or my duties. And it took me a long time to realize that in that role, my job isn't about doing the next thing. It's actually working out where we need to get to and thinking about how we get there. And so
0: step back and looking at strategy rather than operation, isn't it?
1: Yeah. It's about no longer looking at the next step in front of you, but looking at the horizon and actually seeing the landscape and working out the best way to get through it. And then working out how to tell and have that conversation with people about where you're going and getting them to follow you there. Sorry to
0: interrupt you, but I think that is something that we're not particularly good at um, really instilling people during training and those people in sort of relatively early years consultant jobs, because I think I was so focused during my training on, you know, clinically, And, you know, just making good decisions, being safe, not missing things that actually it was only then when I came to take on the consultant role and now doing the consultant role that you realise actually, although that was an important thing to focus on, you know, there were many other important things that now the learning curve starts. Yeah. Um,
1: And we don't upskill people for it. And I do think it's one of the reasons that embedding research in training is actually really important because and a fundamental part of research grant application writing is about seeing it's about thinking where you need to get to and working out what you need to do to get there and even if that's a very small section of that it means that you get used to it a little bit in terms of the strategic stuff moving forward and also one of the things I really try to make my trainees do is go there is a world out there It isn't just your department, like you may feel like you've got really good sense of what's going on here, but your department is a component of a directorate, is a component of a trust, is a component of an ICS, which is a component of the NHS. And unless you understand what's going on up here at kind of national level, you won't see how it's going to trickle down and affect you. And as a consultant, you really need to be able to see what's coming to make sure that you're as prepared as you can be for your service to make sure that you're positioning it right so that you'll make sure that you're sticking to the right direction and you're not too waylaid by the other things that are going to buffet you along the way and if you only see your department and those people that you directly interact with then those things will always come as a surprise and they'll take you off key from where you actually want to be. I think one of the challenges to
0: that though is actually time because just doing the day job and you know infection control clinical where it is so time consuming and so busy and this feels like there's fewer and fewer of us to do what's becoming as you were saying about ipc and the environment for example just ever increasingly complex and so actually having the time to step back have a look around where you're fitting in where you're placing yourself future proofing planning yourself you know some security for your department it's really hard when you'll kind of feel like you're like treading water. But I think that's a really good piece of advice, to be honest, for, for junior colleagues.
1: And it's one of the reasons I blog. Yeah. Because actually, the mere act of sitting down. It's a reflection. For an hour on a Friday night with the gin and tonic means that I have bought myself reflection time that I hope is also useful to other people. Um, because I think if it wasn't useful for other people, I'm not sure I would prioritize it enough to make it happen for myself. But actually, because I think it's actually fairly, I get fairly good feedback about the fact that it's useful for others, then it prioritises it enough that it's worth an investment of my time to make it happen.
0: Yeah, I can totally understand that because we do always prioritise our own needs and self-care quite low in our priority list. Before I kind of wrap it up, because time's pressing on really quickly, is
1: there anything else that I haven't mentioned that you'd like to mention? Only that, I think that we are entering such an interesting period in healthcare and obviously that's going to be really really challenging but I think it has huge areas of opportunity. I am aware that on social media and other places right now it feels like people are becoming more siloed in response to that fear than becoming open in response to that fear and I want people to really be encouraged to see that fear is actually an opportunity and that we need to embrace it. And if we can give ourselves over to change and to working with other professions and to really valuing difference, then that will lead us where we need to end up. And I think we just need to be brave and open doors and not close them in response to the challenges that are currently around us.
0: So on that, I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to thank you, everyone, so much for listening. I really, really hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. You can look up Elaine's blog at girlymicrobiologist.com and find her on Twitter at girlymicro. We will link to these and also to other things we've discussed in today's show notes. Elaine is a past recipient of a HISS small research grant, a Mike Emerson early career award and a HISS public engagement grant. And we'll link to all of these HISS grants as well. We'd love to hear from you, your thoughts and suggestions. So please look up also our Twitter channels at JHI Editor and at IPIP underscore open. In the meantime, please do like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on your usual channels to be alerted when we release more podcasts in the future. And thanks again for listening.